The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Is Disney boss Bob Iger biting off more than he can chew in bidding for parts of Rupert Murdoch's empire? Can China's competitive bike-sharing market turn a profit? And what are the lessons of the Democratic Party's Senate victory in Alabama? Those are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and my co-host is Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Uh, good day. So uh, Disney and Bob Iger, uh, he's been cooking up a transaction to buy a bunch of Fox assets valued at some $60 billion from Rupert Murdoch. It's a complicated affair, but luckily, Jen, you're our resident expert on all things media. So look, Disney's huge already. It's worth $160-odd billion. It's got its fingers in most pies. Why on earth does it need to buy even more businesses? Yeah. So first of all, this deal happened. No one ever thought that Rupert Murdoch would be a seller Ever. He's an aggressive uh, acquirer. And, you know, Disney typically is very um, shrewd about the investments and acquisitions that it makes. So this is sort of head spinning if you're like following media. Yeah. But really at the, at the crux of it is um, Netflix, I mean, and, and the whole video streaming uh movement that's been going on. Disney is behind the game on this. Um, They did announce plans that they're going to start their own video streaming service direct to consumers um, that they hope to get off the ground, I think, next year. So the, the strategic rationale for this is for Disney to take parts of Fox, like the movie studio, some of its cable networks like FX and National Geographic, and some of the regional sports networks. And this is going to give Disney a bigger content library to compete against some of these other services, most notably Netflix. Okay, content, fine. But, I mean, Netflix is spending a fair bit of money on content these days, what, $7, $8 billion a year. But it's, it's way behind in content generation than, say, Disney. So it sounds like Disney just lacks the, the technology at the moment to get into people's bedrooms and, and front yeah, rooms. I so mean, what, why buy, spend all this money on content when the issue seems to be more one of... Of, of a technical thing, yeah. right? Or, yeah. or, or that you haven't built up enough steam yet. I mean, Disney surely has a ton of content it can put on there already. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think fear is, is definitely a factor into this whole thing. Um, I... The the issue is that Netflix has ballooned in market value so much. I think it's last I checked, it was about seventy, eighty billion dollars. Um, they have one hundred million global subscribers. So you have to understand that is a really difficult thing to get quickly. Um, Disney can probably do this. I mean, if there's anyone out there that has a brand with a instant recognition, it's Disney. But it's still really difficult to amass that kind of subscriber base. And I think what they're hoping is that they get some content. And let's not forget, part of the deal is for um, Fox's stake in Sky over in Europe, which would give them an automatic uh, subscriber base. Uh, I believe I saw the number was somewhere like 22 million. Here's the thing. I mean, I think as we sort of teased at the beginning, I think as you you got in in your view on this – it's, a, it's big, it's complicated. And for Iger, I mean, he's never done a deal anywhere near this big. I mean, you think of, you know, a deal for Lucasfilm at, what, $4 billion. I mean, Lucasfilm, let's not forget, maker of the wonderful Star Wars movies yes. that were new one coming, coming out this out. week. Yes. I mean, to an extent, like you said, it sounds like a mere ma- move made out of fear rather than anything else. Yeah, I mean, it certainly feels like that to me. And, uh, you know, listen, Disney deserves a lot of credit. They've done some smart things. But, but what we're looking at right now is a company that... 
um, is on the basically the cusp of this huge transition in media going on right now. And ESPN is definitely playing into that. It's been hammered the stock because of the declines in ESPN viewership. And that's traditional cable package where they have made money hand over fist. Um, That's dropping. And so what's kind of weird is like, okay, they're going to double down on sports now. So they're going to go buy a bunch of regional sports networks if this is the way the deal is going to pan out. At the same time, sports right costs are going up. I was just looking at a report from Pricewaterhouse that said they basically think it'll go up roughly around 5% next year, just the content rights in North America. Um, And then on top of that, you have like decline in ratings. You have this big issue kind of looming over the NFL right now, where this is the second year in a row where there's been a massive decline in their ratings. So you have to wonder, okay, so they're going to double down on sports. They're going to end up taking some cable assets that may not quite fit in the Disney portfolio. Disney is known for being extremely family friendly. Um, So they're going to be getting, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's a terrific show. But it's really edgy. Um, You know, The Americans, it's a fantastic show. It's edgy. I mean, there's a lot of nudity and and whatnot in that show that Disney is not known for that. So you have that. And then the third thing is the regulatory aspect. I mean, we have the Department of Justice that just sued AT&T to block its $85 billion deal with Time Warner. How Disney and Fox thinks that they're not going to, you know, this is going to just go by their path and not catch their attention. You know, if you're a shareholder in Disney and you have held the stock since Iger's been at the helm, you've done terrific for yourself. I mean, he's he's really, and, he, and, and as we've mentioned, Lucasfilms has been a great acquisition. I think we've written before, like, oh, that's pricey. Yeah, you I know? think initially, I remember writing the <laughs> first piece when did. they bought it. It's like, hey, look, you know, if you can do more with this franchise, I'm all for it personally. But, you know, on a, on a, on a professional level, it looks Tricky, but you're right. They did very well with they it. They did very well with it. They did well with Marvel. They did well with Pixar. So this is a very different It's a very different – it's a, di- a different acquisition. Um, they may pull it off again, but, you know, uh, it, there's a lot of risk. Now we move on to bike sharing. More and more cities offer them, not just early adopters like Boris Bikes in London and City Bikes in New York. The idea has really picked up speed in China, though. Let's hand it over to our colleagues in Hong Kong to take us on a ride through the market. Hi, I'm Asia Financial Editor Quentin Webb. I'm here with my colleague Asia Editor Pete Sweeney. We're here today to talk about bike sharing in China. Now, if you haven't been to a Chinese city recently, you might have missed the kind of most remarkable urban transformation. Pete, can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, so it's been a really kind of abrupt explosion in Chinese innovation of late. And like one of the the leading examples of this transformation into the new Internet of Things has been the shared bicycle. It's actually a Chinese invention, full on. Um, somebody, a couple companies decided um, to basically marry a cheap bicycle with a cell phone with a GPS chip in it. Um, so in a lot of Western cities, you'll see these bikes that you can rent for a short ride and then park in a dock by putting a GPS chip in it and linking it to a payment app on a cell phone. These companies basically allow these, these bikes to be picked up and ridden anywhere for short periods. They're extremely cheap. Um, they're very, very useful, like on days with high traffic or in particular for that like last mile, they call it, the, the trip between like the bus stop and your final destination or like a business launch is a little too far to walk, you know, but a little too close to cab. Um, so they've seen incredible take up, but there's just been tons of market entry. There's like 40 companies throwing bikes on the street. Venture capitalists just all thought it was the next big thing. They put billions of dollars into it. 
and uh, and now there's this kind of die-off starting, um, which is is you know there's been like a recent wave of, of bankruptcies, and everybody's kind of wondering what's what's next for these guys. And what, why do you think now we're going from kind of exuberance to a bit of a crash? What's happening? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the market entry was certainly a problem. I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, in and we've seen this in other Chinese industries. You think of like a startup app with relatively low barriers to entry. I mean, some people just bought a bunch of bikes, cheap, cheap bikes, you know, literally just like, you know, MacGyvered some sort of, of technology onto them and threw them onto the streets and waited for venture capitalists to come and, and buy them. Um, they didn't charge any money. Um, you know, they, uh, they were just going for raw user base accumulation and hoping that somebody was going to come and bail them out. Um, the venture capitalists got smart. Um, the bigger market leaders, Mobike and Ofo, started hogging most of the money that was being raised. Um, so these guys just ran out of cash and started leaving their bike. One poor, I mean, there were also all these other problems, right? Like uh, one, one company had all its bicycles stolen. Um, but anyways, like a die-off was inevitable and, and now it's underway. And so there is a discussion, I think, that's very live at the moment about whether the two biggest players, who, as you said, were Mobike and Ofo, should themselves merge. Of course, in China, there used to be three big ride-hailing companies and we're now effectively down to one market leader, Didi, which merged into Uber and before that had uh, been the product of an earlier merger. Do you think something similar should happen in the bike-sharing industry too? I don't think it should. Uh, honestly, I don't think it was a good outcome for ride-sharing to end up with a monopoly. Um, I don't think that's ever healthy. Um, I would like more competition there. Um, it might happen simply because you know there are investors who are publicly calling for the two to merge so they can start moving up prices and ending like subsidized competition. Um, but there's a lot of reasons why it might not. Didi is invested in Ofo, by the way, um, so there's there's a link up there. But the the main problem is, well, there's two issues. One is that that their their allies are incompatible. Mobike is has got a bunch of investment from Tencent. Um, Tencent is interested in this because they're paying. You know, the, the mobile payments, their mobile payments tool can be used to unlock these mobikes. Alibaba who is just Tencent's biggest competitor in this space, is invested in Ofo. Um, so there'd have to be a real diplomatic reconciliation for these guys to get together. Um, that might happen. But the other thing is that, um, you know, there's room for a duopoly or a triumvirate or something like that here. I mean, you can do, I mean, these are custom bicycles. You know, they're designed for different things. There's room for product differentiation. There's room for, I mean, some people are doing like slight motor-assisted motor bikes that cost a little more. Um, some will penetrate into third tier, fourth tier, lower tier cities. Um, you know, there's different transportation needs in different areas based on geography. Um, you know, some, some people want gears on their bikes. You know, you don't really need that in flat as a pancake Shanghai. So there's space for them to get along. You're talking about hundreds of millions of users. Um, you know, really, really rapid growth in the triple digits in terms of take up. And it solves a real problem. You know, I mean, like, like they're basically competing with the price of public transit. Um, and it's a lot more flexible in public transit. And there's all these other revenue uh, lines they can tap, advertising. They're also accruing this massive amount of data. If you go on like Mobike's site, um, they track their individual bicycles moving around. They have this really interesting picture of human movement through cities that might be useful to retailers, stuff like that. So there's still money to be made. And, you know, if we go down from like 40 to somewhere closer to the single digits, we might end up with a healthy ecosystem. And that, that brings me on to my other question, which, as you alluded to, is where is the money coming from? I mean, this is a very real debate, even in ride hailing. You know, at what point do these companies start turning a profit? Certainly in bike sharing, there's ruinous competition. 
uh, we've seen all these incredible pictures of tens of thousands of bikes being thrown into the trash, uh, you, you know, thrown into the kind of garbage dumps of big cities in China. Um, how do you think we go from where we are now to a place where these companies really make money? I mean, that's the, a great question. There's all these amateurs um, websites trying to figure out at what point these guys break even. I mean, the big question mark is nobody's listed yet. We can't see. We don't have transparency in their cost structures. Um, but I mean, it's a really interesting model in that these guys are basically bike manufacturers, right? And they just take the bike and once they make it, they just kind of leave it out. And these bikes are designed, you know, to, to just be used as long as possible, just ridden to the ground, really. Um, they're, uh, so, I mean, it's not a question of how much the bikes cost so much as how little you have to put into them once they start getting used and how much utilization you can get out of them. Now, right now, these companies, they talk to you, you know, they're just like, well, we could be profitable. You know, we could make money, but we're too busy expanding. I mean, Mobike is in D.C., Ofo, the, the, both of these guys are going overseas where they think they can make a lot more money because public transit is more expensive, so people be more willing to pay. I know, like, City Bike in New York is much more expensive. You know, they're charging in China, so there's that opportunity. Um, if they get to economies of scale and they become these huge bike manufacturers and can make, make them really cheaply, you know, maybe they can make money more quickly. Uh, you know, I mean, there's also the deposits they charge. Mobike charges 299 renminbi deposit. You can buy a cheap bike for that in China. You can buy that flat out. So I think profitability is possible. Um, but I mean, you know, certainly, you know, there's a lot of op more operational risk than just rolling out an app. But what they do have going for them is that it's solving a real problem. They're not like inventing something like a, a you know, touching up your face selfie app or like these things that are completely arbitrary. I mean, this is a real pain, you know, for urban, urban residents. And I, I think that in the long run, it's, it's a fixable business problem, um, given that the demand is, is seems sustainable. Great. Okay. Well, I think it's a really fascinating example of uh, genuinely Chinese tech innovation. Thanks very much, Pete, for taking the time to talk to us about it. Thanks, Ben. Doug Jones this week became the first Democrat in a quarter century to win a U.S. Senate seat in the southern U.S. state of Alabama, despite an improving and robust economy. His victory over controversial rival Roy Moore narrows the Republican majority in the Senate to two seats. There are plenty of political and economic implications from the result, and joining us to pass through them is our Washington, D.C. columnist, Gina Chon. Welcome, Gina. Thanks for having me. So uh, I suppose you know a, a year or so in, we shouldn't be surprised by anything in politics anymore. But but this one really did did seem to pretty much shock everyone. Although there are reasons why Roy Moore was not particularly the best Republican candidate. Maybe just for those living under a rock who haven't heard all this, what, what was it about Roy Moore that um, that made him less than that less than a decent candidate? Yeah, he definitely had his unique set of problems. Um, you know, most importantly, uh, the Washington Post um, reported certain allegations uh, dating back to when Moore was in his 30s, where he uh, allegedly um, engaged in sexual misconduct with teenage girls. Um, there were reports that he was even banned from a local mall um, in the in the state. So uh, that definitely sparked um, a lot of controversy and he was virtually absent from the campaign trail um, in the last week before the vote on Tuesday, which is 
pretty unusual. Yeah, exactly. But and then he, then he came riding in, and, well, tried to come riding in on a horse, didn't he? He wasn't particularly adept at it, but he stayed on it just about. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, but on, on top of that, he's been sort of a controversial candidate. Even before all of this, he's made um, statements that were deemed offensive um, about uh, slavery and, and um, African-Americans. Um, he's also said homosexuality should be illegal so he's he's um definitely has had no shortage of um of coverage uh in sort of a negative sense throughout his campaign um and we saw the results of that on um on tuesday night nonetheless of course it was still pretty close i think you know one and a half two percentage points in it but talk us through so i mean politically speaking what are the implications here and does it does the fact that alabama has voted for a Democrat for the first time in so long. Tell us anything either about Alabama. I mean, this this seat will be contested again pretty soon, right? Because this was a fill-in election after Jeff Sessions was uh, taken on uh, to the Department of Justice, correct? So... I mean, is there anything to read through from this, do you think, at the moment? Yeah, I mean, you're right that it will be up again uh, in 2020 and Doug Jones will face a pretty uh, contested race then as well, um, just given uh, Alabama's history of voting for Republicans. I mean, he's really the first Democrat in 25 years to to win a Senate seat from that state. Um, But it could have broader implications, uh, mainly because President Trump threw in his hat so visibly with Roy Moore, um, much to the chagrin of uh, the Republican Party establishment, some of his own political advisors. He was uh, just out there a few days ago um, in a speech praising Moore and then touting his own economic record. He did um, robocalls to voters for Moore. So he really tied himself uh, to this candidate. And uh, we've seen the backlash against it. And um, that could have broader ramifications for the 2018 midterm elections and beyond. So, I mean, you mentioned um, Trump and the economy there. I mean, this, again, I mean, you know, a year in, you know, whether Trump can really take much credit for um, job creation or wealth creation or whatever is, 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 is moot. We can debate that for a while. But let's just assume that there's a degree of, of truth to that. But you look at Alabama, where you know, things have got better and better in this state, which does this mean that, you know, Trump's economic policies, even if you know, the tax cuts help people in the first year or two if they're passed, may well be far less relevant than, um, than people would, would give it credit for. Them. Well, that was an interesting aspect to this election. The unemployment rate in Alabama actually fell pretty dramatically this year from about 6.4% in January to 3.6% in October. And that's uh, actually below the, the national rate of 4.1%. So that's a pretty big drop uh, for a state that had been lagging in the recovery compared to the rest of the country. And you would think just uh, on top of that, their uh, trend of voting for Republicans for decades would have really favored Trump's economic message where he's been touting, you know, record job growth, record stock markets, everything's beautiful and and great and wonderful. Um, And he was pretty popular in the state as well uh, when he ran for president in 2016. Uh, But voter anger over all of these other issues, whether they're both surrounding more, but also the president himself. Um, Again, he won uh, 2016 with over 60 percent of the vote. But 
this year we saw in the exit polls that voters were actually evenly split between their approval and disapproval, um, both coming in at 48% for the president. So that's really shown um, a drop in his popularity in the state as well. What about voter turnout, Gina? Does that tell us anything? Uh, Certainly there's been a lot of talk of women and especially black women turning out in larger numbers than normal. Is there anything to read through from that for, say, the 2018 midterms countrywide? Yeah, no, they were uh, very energized. um, And to Doug Jones's credit, he uh, seemed to have a pretty good ground organization in terms of getting out the vote. But uh, certain pockets of voters, whether it was women or African-American voters, were much more motivated um, in this special election where, you know, normally on an off-presidential year, you know, you see very low turnout. But um, among African-Americans, it was around 30 percent, which was very high uh, compared to other past elections. And we've seen uh, some of that um, in other races so far this year as well. Um, in addition to sort of uh, white college-educated voters also um, sort of turning off from Trump um, in Alabama. And we saw some of those patterns in Virginia uh, in the gubernatorial race in um, in November, where it, it is a blue state. Virginia traditionally does go uh, Democratic, but they overperformed in that state as well as in New Jersey. So that could um, be some warning signs for the Republican Party in terms of enthusiasm and and turnout prospects for future elections. Um, Gina, as we're talking now, uh, the Republicans are uh, close to uh, voting on the tax reform bill that they have been working on for the past couple of weeks. Does the fact that Doug Jones won the seat, um, is that going to come into effect at all? Uh, into the vote? Um, and it actually won't. Um, he's probably won't be seated until early next year. They need to certify the elections first, which probably won't take place until after uh, Christmas. And Republicans are clearly hoping that they get the tax bill done by then and, and, and possibly voting Um as early as next week so uh that they're hoping to wrap that up as as well they they should because their margin um gets even slimmer with the addition of doug jones and they'll only have uh 51 out of 100 seats next year okay gina thanks for taking us through that uh i'm sure we'll have you back on the show very soon thanks for coming on thanks for having me that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Gina Chan, Quentin Webb, and Pete Sweeney for joining us. And also hats off to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ryan Warner, and Andrew D'Antonio. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. Do share your opinions about our show. Join us next week for another edition.